Hey guys, just a quick disclaimer, we're going to be talking about topics that include sexual assault and substance abuse. Hi guys, it's Perry and Donish, and we are here recording what will hopefully be the first of many podcast episodes. This time, we're going to be talking about my sobriety, my journey to sobriety, how I got sober, how I, <laughs> how I got sober, <laughs> how I got sober, how I've stayed sober, and what it looks like day to day. Yes. <laughs> okay. And Perry is almost one year sober, so yeah. everyone clap. We're doing your when I release this, I will be one year sober. And yes. That is huge. And amazing. So we are recording in a bathroom right now, but mm-hmm. you see it as a bathroom, we see it as a studio, so. It is our private studio. It is our private we take studio. it very seriously. Yes. So. It's a business. But we're, we want to start every podcast episode, I guess, with kind of, you know, an icebreaker. Set the mood, you know, have some fun. So I'm going to ask a question. Okay. Would you rather eat a million babies... Or what? <laughs> I can tell she has not prepped this question. <laughs> okay, fine, 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 fine. Would you rather eat a million toenails mm-hmm. or one pound of earwax? Ooh, wow. Yeah. It's really disgusting. Let me think about what a pound would look like. Jeez. It's hard to comprehend that. Okay, and a million toenails? Hang on. Million toenails of a stranger and a million and a pound of a stranger's like earwax. Right. Okay. It's not your own. Here's what I'm gonna tell you. I really don't think it would make a difference if I knew the person or not. Like it's still toenails and earwax. So uh honestly, I'm gonna have to go with earwax. Somehow that seems more digestible and potentially better for you, if that makes sense. The like earwax. Maybe, maybe there's some health benefits there that we don't know about. I was thinking maybe you bake the toenails in something though. And then you could like eat it oh. and not know about it. Oh my gosh, I didn't even get that creative. I was yeah. just gonna go like all in scoops, scoops of ice cream. Yeah. Could yeah. you imagine scoops of earwax. earwax ice cream? That sounds absolutely disgusting. Sounds like yeah. Sounds like it exists somewhere in this world. Well, I would pick the toenails and bake it into things, and then eat it, it's, and just deal with my life. Seems like you've thought of this before. Yeah, I have extensively. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start, everybody. Dive in. Some of you guys have uh, sent in questions, and I really appreciate everyone who you know, wanted me to discuss some of the ins and outs of my sober life. So we're going to hit on some of those, you know, um, we're also going to, I'm just going to talk about some of the stuff that I think is important to address. So yeah, here we go. Okay. So first off, I just want to talk to Perry and ask this question, kind of what is your history, I guess, with Mm -hmm. substances? I have a pretty extensive history with substances. I started experimenting, exploring at a very young age. I was exposed to um, a lot that I think, you know, growing up now, I'm like, oh, that maybe wasn't normal. That maybe wasn't the best thing for a developing mind to have that kind of freedom, that kind of exposure. And uh, I don't think it's anyone's fault. I just think it ha- it's my set of circumstances that I happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time quite a few times in my life. When I was a little girl, I was always curious about alcohol, but you know, as any kid would be, it wasn't um, anything disturbing as a young child. And then when I hit puberty, oh my gosh, all hell broke loose. I really, I pray if I ever had a teenager one day that they're not like me. Love you, mom. Thank you for putting up with me. 
So when I got into middle school is when things kind of started to take a turn for the worst. I moved, I transitioned. So in sixth grade, I was living in Florida. And then the summer between sixth and seventh grade, I moved to North Carolina. And of course, that's a very pivotal time in someone's life. You know, I was 12 turning 13. And uh, I, again, like I said, I had been several times in the wrong place, wrong time situations. I was also, um, I hit puberty kind of young. And so my mind was racing with all these thoughts of sexuality. You know, in sixth grade, I had an experience in Florida that really, I think, rocked my world and sent me spiraling in a, in a way once I moved. And that is what I now recognize as a sexual assault. I was 12 at the time and I was happened to be like running around with older boys because like I said, I looked a little older. And um, again, wrong place, wrong time. I was put into a really tough position with one of these older boys doing something that I I would have never done on my own accord and uh, just very violating and I can remember it vividly to this day. When we ended up moving, of course, that jolted my world in a different way, but I was already, my headspace was totally rocked and I just really spiraled my seventh grade year. I actually got in trouble for drinking. I, you know, took liquor from one of my friend's parents' liquor cabinet and I got really drunk at her house. Of course, I was a 13 year old. I had no concept of like how to manage my alcohol. I'm just getting plastered, you know, I'm running around and I'm looking for it. I was looking for alcohol. I was looking for like, I wanted to try smoking weed. I wanted to do it all. I I was the like, same way with boys. I was just completely unhinged. And I remember the summer in between seventh and eighth grade. So the following summer, I had been new to North Carolina for about a year. And I went to somebody's house whose parents were out of town. We were all drinking and the cops ended up coming and I got a drinking ticket at 13. And my mom had to come pick me up and it was horrifying. And just to blow into a breathalyzer at that age. And when you're 13, you bear that weight in such a way of like, this is my fault. I'm a shameful person. I'm I'm not redeemable. Everyone knows about this. I live in a small town. It felt like it felt like there was a massive spotlight on me. Like I was that kid, you know, your parents don't want you hanging around with. It took me a lot to get out of that headspace, but I did, you know, through high school, I struggled back and forth, you know, I, it was all around. I went to a high school that was very concentrated with drugs and alcohol and it was the center of attention. So I was always actively trying to avoid it. And I really, I think that that was really a lot about, um, I saw the way that substances were affecting my immediate family and it scared me. It became so prevalent for people that I loved. Also, I think there was a pride element as a young girl and a teenage girl being like, I don't want to go back there. I don't want people thinking that way of me anymore. I have changed and I believe that I've changed and I don't want to be seen that way. And I just, I grew into this person that really just hated it. I would still drink here and there, but I just, I hated it and I thought it could only do harm. So, you know, going into college, I was kind of back and forth with it. And then I went through a really difficult heartbreak. You know, this was a person that I put every, all of my eggs into this basket and then it came crashing down and I just couldn't handle it. My, my mind snapped and my sophomore year of college, I just, again, it was like another, it was like a repeat of 13 where like something snapped in me and I couldn't hold it together anymore and all of 
that that same girl came back, that same sort of like what felt like a monster at the time. And I started doing drugs. I was like open to anything. I almost failed out of school. It is by the grace of God that my professors showed me grace and saw something in me because if it weren't for them, I would have failed out of school. I was at a tiny Christian college and I was completely off the deep end. I almost lost my life. And that is what freaked me out. I stopped for, I didn't stop, but I I stopped doing all all the drugs after my sophomore year. I kind of got it together and I was able to get my head back in school. And from then on, it was just drinking. And it was just drinking for the next, what, five years. It was just drinking. And I thought, because it's just drinking, I'm okay. I'm not, you know, tripping acid anymore. I'm not like snorting a line of Coke or... You know, I'm not trying to do Molly. I'm I'm just drinking and it's acceptable. It's legal, it's accessible, and it's socially common. I really thought, wow, okay, well, I don't have a problem. And I see people in my life. I know people who have problems. Trust me, I'm not one of them. That was actually the plague for me, I think, was thinking that because something is societally acceptable and I'm not doing hard drugs, that I am immune from being an addict. I'm immune from this thing affecting me and deteriorating the fibers of my being. What were you trying to chase or trying to replace with alcohol? Uh, For me, I think there's a lot of deep-seated anxiety that I deal with on a day-to-day basis, and I'm still sorting through it. I think that's the biggest fear people have with getting sober is like, I don't want to fight this. I don't want to fight this without a crutch of sorts, something to take the edge off. That really, it's so, alcohol is so often described as that for a reason. It takes, it literally takes the edge off. It literally is a muscle relaxer. It takes the weight off of you for a moment. So the thought of having to deal with your emotions is terrifying. And that scared the shit out of me. I'm like, I have so much debt I've collected over the years of emotional debt. I'm not prepared to deal with it. I'm still dealing with the fallout of my teenage trauma, you know, and something I I just recently within the last couple of years realized that what happened to me as a 12 year old little girl was not acceptable and it, it was not my choice. Because for so many years, I carried that as, I'm a bad girl. I did that, and Mm -hmm. that was really disgusting, and it sent me into a really dark place then. It wasn't until I got sober that I was able to even recognize that. So I think it was a lot of running from reconciliation in my own life and running from having to feel feelings. <laughs> I, I'm a, an extremely emotional person. And I also thought, you know, I'm so emotional, it's irritating even to myself. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you think it's irritating? Try being me. I'm, like, I'm a crier. I feel really big. And so alcohol was a way to not have to feel so big, even though, you know, I would feel really, really, <laughs> really big whenever I would get really drunk. So it caught up to me. How often were you drinking? A day, a week? What would you say the normalcy was for you? So my go-to was wine. I had wine every day. If I didn't have wine in a day, it was like a huge... I thought about it a lot. I was like, wow, I'm so good. I didn't have wine today. Like it was a it was a way for me to say, see, I don't have a problem. Right. I didn't have wine today. But right. that, those days were few and far between. Coming close to the time I got sober within the last year, I started seeing wine bottles pile up in my room that I was renting everywhere. Wine bottles because I, you know, they collect and you don't take the recycling out all the time. So looking around and seeing wine bottles everywhere really jolted me. I would probably on average like a whole bottle each night. Sometimes it would just be half a bottle. Sometimes it would be three quarters of a bottle. I would like to have two because it made me feel safe. 
And I would justify it like, you know, if it's buy one, get one or whatever. But to have two made me feel safe in case I needed one. I needed to break into one. Another thing is I used to like pre-game for pre-games. So I knew if we were, you know. I know. You know. know. (laughs) If we were doing something, I would try to start drinking around five. Because again, in my mind, it was all about making it acceptable. So, okay, I've waited until five. I've let the day pass me and I have earned it now and it's five and I can drink and it's acceptable and it's okay. But sometimes if I knew we were doing something, I'd start, I'd break it open like 3.34. I would drink. I would have enough to feel like ready to go. I'm not anxious. I'm not thinking about other things. I'm in the moment. I've had my alcohol. Then we get to the place we're pre-gaming and I pre-game some more. And then we go out and I order some drinks. And then (laughs) I am crying by... 12 a.m. <laughs> so right outside the club. You know it. You know it. A year ago, I would be mortified if I thought I'd be sharing this with people because it was so shame-filled. I once again thought I overcame something and I'm about to shatter everyone's perception of me. But really it was. It was like, I don't want people to know about this. I can't, I can't fathom people learning this about me, that I'm the one struggling. What was it like growing up in essentially the South and the shame culture that there is in terms of making your personal struggles and like demons known to other people and actually talking about it? What was that like for you? Was that difficult? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I come from a Southern family, like through and through, and I love them and I I understand. But there is this sense of sweep it under the rug. We don't want to talk about it. Mental health. We don't want to talk about the ugly. And this is really ugly. So to feel like, you know, I had done something as a little girl that was shameful and embarrassing and I don't couldn't explain it. I really thought something was wrong with me. I'm like, I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, but it's disgusting and I know that and I don't know how to stop and I don't know what's wrong with me. And to shake that childhood mindset, you have to actively work against Southern shame culture. And I'm so blessed because my immediate family is doing it too. We're done. We're done closeting information. We're going to talk about mental health. We're going to talk about substance abuse. We're going to talk about these things because they grow in the darkness. That's what happens is it grows and it overcomes you. You can't let it become shame like a disfigured face. I don't have a disfigured face. I had like a stain on a shirt is how I kind of tend to like what I tend to compare it to you know I am not disfigured there is something that is redeemable and washable about these circumstances I have had to actively work against that shame I just don't want to carry it through to another generation I want my children to know you can talk to me about this and we can sort through this and this does not define you and I mean it when I say that that's not like a cute little like walking your identity right your identities cast it away no like it really this doesn't define me like I thought it did for so many years and when I fell back hard into doing drugs heavily my sophomore year of college I thought I've never really changed I put a band-aid over that 13 year old girl and it came off and look at me now I'm right back where I was you know this last year when I was at my lowest I'm like this is who I really am this is who I really am. And I've covered it up and I couldn't keep it up again. It was a facade. And now it's all of my walls have broken down. And here I am, this shameful little 12, 13 year old girl. And that's not true. That's not true. That 12, 13 year old girl put way too much weight on her own experiences and her own trauma. I don't think she received it as trauma. She received it as I'm bad. And I've carried that with me. And I'm still dismantling that lie. 
you just said a little bit earlier, like, I didn't even know that was sexual assault until I got sober and like realized that experience affected my life and it was not okay what happened. Right. So what was that reckoning for you and what, how did you deal with that? Um, well, I mean, I, you know, like I said, I was exposed to a lot at a really young age, just a lot of sexual information that I would, I don't think children should be, their minds aren't ready and fused to be able to receive that sort of information. So, you know, seeing images, having experiences that really, I think, altered my perception of sexuality and what it looks like to have a sexual experience. When that happened to me, my sixth grade year, I'd heard of other experiences where I'm like, oh, well, this does happen girls do do this. And in middle school, yeah, like it does happen. You know, you have your first kiss or you mess around with your girlfriend or boyfriend. And it does, of course it happens. But like as a sixth grader, as a 12 year old, I I can remember that day clearly. Mm -hmm. I remember every little detail. Like there was an orange icy and like, I just remember how like it was painful. We were in a remote place that I never would have gone on my own. And it came to me that like, I hated that moment. Nothing about me enjoyed that moment. And I never planned to have that moment. And I was way in over my head. I was way in over my head dating guys who were about to go into high school. I carried that with me because I always felt older, but I wasn't, I was a 12 year old girl. Like I wasn't even a teenager, you no, know, yeah. I was just a little girl. And those older boys were about to go to high school and taking advantage of you. Yeah. Even by a couple years in age, there's a difference in what they knew and what you didn't know and they took advantage right. of you. And it's right. And I, you know, I don't look back and think, wow, what a jerk. Like what an idiot. Because he was 14. Feels different to me than if it were like a grown man. And that is another reason I think it took me a long time to reconcile with how pivotal that experience was for me because he, in my eyes, was a kid. But that age difference, sixth grade to eighth grade is huge. It's It's a massive difference. I don't have any animosity or feelings of he should have known better. Maybe he should have. I think the most important thing that I take from it is, wow, I realized how much that influenced my next moves and why I reacted the way I did to being the new girl. And I, I don't, I can't fully explain it. Yeah. It gave me at least some insight and information as to why I began my substance abuse journey. Almost a year ago, that day that you just decided to get sober, can you walk me through what that day was like and when you yeah. made that decision? Yeah, so I was actually in North Carolina. I went home whenever we realized that we weren't going to be in person for school. And so I was like, well, I might as well go back to North Carolina and do my classes there because I like to go home any chance I get. I feel very far from my family and I like to see them. So I was home. I was in a household that drinking at the time was very prevalent. I mean, again, like I said, every night, every day, every night, it was always around and in a way that made me feel safe. Oh, if anything, like, I'm not that bad, you know? It's, again, comparison is such a liar. Sobriety and drug abuse is so subjective. I was creating a false sense of stability mm-hmm. in that environment. And on May 3rd of 2020, I woke up hungover again. That was something I would always, like, lie to myself about. I'm like, nobody needs to ever know how many headaches I deal with a week. Nobody has to know that, but it it was showing in my face. It was catching up to me. How much I was drinking was catching up to my body, and I didn't look like myself. I didn't feel like myself. I was severely out of shape. I felt like a little bit dead, you know, like part of me was something was suffocating. And I woke up that day, and I just prayed, and I was like, I can't do this anymore, and I mean it this time. 
like when you have a severe hangover, even if you don't believe in a God, you're like, God, take away God, this pain. I know you're there. Like, take this from me. But, you know, it was it was genuine. It was like, I will give this up for life because that was the thing I was struggling with for about for months prior to getting sober. I was considering sobriety. And the biggest thing for me is like, I don't know if I can commit to this forever. But for me, and again, this is different for everyone, it had to be a lifetime decision because otherwise I wasn't going to have the gusto to really stop. I needed to take it off the table. It couldn't even be a choice. It couldn't be like, I'm just going to take a year off and we'll see how it goes. And for some people that does work. I'm on a like sobriety forum and some people are like, maybe I'll try again. And I've just been really honest about my journey. And I'm like, maybe I'll try again is going to put me in the grave. (laughs) Like I, I am done. And I had to make that commitment. I didn't tell anyone about it that day. I just went through my day. And Mm -hmm. a couple of days later, I talked to my mom and I was like, I'm going to be sober. You know, I was on Adderall from the time I was like 13, 14 until I was 25. I, for years, was like, I don't want to be on this anymore. This is affecting me. I feel like I can't function without it. I feel like I'm not myself without my Adderall. And I I just want to know what it's like to trust that I can do something without it. And so I'd been off that and I wanted to be off of everything. I wanted to be sober completely. In terms of the way that the world views addiction, especially something like alcohol or drugs, I feel that there is a stigma around it in terms of, well, it was a choice for you. You're choosing that. You're picking up a bottle. You're picking up the pills. You're doing this. You're doing that. And I don't think that there's this sense of empathy in society and how we view addiction because addiction is a disease. Mm -hmm. Like any other disease, it needs to be treated like that. I'm sure you've had experiences where people have been like confused about you choosing to be sober or like so surprised about it. This is a lifelong journey for you. But for some people, they're like, well, how does that even work? Like maybe you can just manage it and, tr- and try again one day. How do you, I guess, deal with that? If, that, if those questions ever come into your life or how do you deal yeah. with that? I've had some interesting responses to my sobriety and all of them are welcome. Today, somebody said, well, you must have really had a problem then. <laughs> and I was like... I just welcomed it. I'm like, well, here's the thing. It looks different for everyone. Yeah. And I struggled myself with wanting to be like, well, you know, my alcohol dependency wasn't as bad as this person's. I I struggled with that for so long. Yeah. And not wanting to lump myself in with the blackout drunks. Well, I know good and well, I've been blackout more times than I can count. So sure, you know, like I may have been getting by, but who knows how much longer I would have been getting by. Mm -hmm. I don't know what my life would have looked like. I really don't. I was in a dark place uh, with this dependency So I just think it's a horrible generalization to assume that picking up the bottle is a choice and alcoholism is a disease and we don't understand the human brain. So I think it's grossly arrogant to say you're picking up the bottle, like you're making the choice to ruin your life. Even if you did some research into the correlation between mental illness and substance abuse, you'd realize that people suffering from a mental illness are many times more likely to pick up the bottle to use than somebody who is neurotypical or operating from a quote-unquote normal Mm -hmm. mental space. It's something that we need to talk more about, and hopefully those people who have such a negative view on people who use or people who drink Hopefully that would open a door for them to see more clearly what it's like for someone 
who is in the grips of addiction, what that really looks like. Follow people. TikTok has been a great resource. I follow a lot of recovering meth addicts on TikTok and that's just, I mean, so helpful to me to hear their story. And it gives me hope for people in my life that are in the bounds of addiction because like if you can be a recovering addict from meth, Mm -hmm. that is a superhero. And those are the people we make monsters out of. Yeah, We dehumanize addicts and that is uh, to me evil. That is pure evil. So now we're going to get into some of the questions from our audience. Our uh, viewers. Our viewers. Our listeners. And people sent in some questions to Perry, so I'm just going to... We're going to go through these right now. But I actually have one. First off, this is a term that I've only heard recently, mm-hmm. and it is the term California sober. Aye, aye, aye. What are your thoughts on that yeah. California sober? California sober is weed and alcohol. I think it, it might be in, I think it might be in moderation. It's I think essentially oh, okay. it's just right, right, right. <laughs> because I'm an addict and I, I I really do well with moderation. Yeah, that's that's it. Uh, I I'm sorry. I think it's very silly. Like I just if somebody came to me and they're like, "Well, I'm California sober, and what are you gonna do about it?" I wouldn't be like, "What? Well, what do you want to end your life? Like, what are you doing, you big idiot?" Like I wouldn't shame someone. You know, weed has been so helpful for so many people. And there are times where I would even be like, hey, this might really help you. Like, I might even recommend it. But if you're someone that struggles with substance abuse, I would recommend sobriety. Like, really just being sober from anything that's going to take you out of your own headspace and create essentially an alternate reality for you because that's the danger zone. So I would not, I would never recommend California sober to anybody struggling with substances. But like I said, with weed, I personally am... I've never been partial to weed. I battle anxiety. So, and weed is something that's always been a trigger for my anxiety as opposed to a reliever of anxiety for me. And again, now knowing my substance abuse journey, I wouldn't try, but I know that it works for some. And if for some that don't have substance abuse history and issues. Right. And that's, I don't have any you know, Pro- problem with it. Yeah, I don't have any reservations with it. I've seen good come from use of, of marijuana. Well, that's perfect. We answered that question. What do you think about weed? Yeah. <laughs> what do I think about weed? Not for me, but maybe for you. How have you been best supported throughout this process? Yeah, I have had some incredible friends. One is sitting in this bathroom with me. And, you know, honestly, I'll just go ahead and talk about you for a second. Uh, Donish, who's here with me, has been a massive support system for me. Donish does not have a substance abuse issue. And that is so cool. It's just cool to watch, like, the other night, we went out to dinner at in Long Beach, which is where we're hopefully moving, and we were just having the best day on the beach. We went to this uh, cute little Mexican restaurant called Lola's, and the only seats open were at the bar. You know, we were like, okay, we'll sit there, but of course I'm face-to-face with a whole wall of bottles. You know, for about two minutes when I'm in the presence of alcohol, I struggle with like, man, I really wish I could just order a beer. I really wish I could just order a drink. With resistance, it goes away, and I'm perfectly fine again. But it's just cool to hear this guy, this bartender, be like, do you guys, can I start you off with a cocktail? And Donish goes, no. Can we have two Mexican Cokes? <laughs> I'm just like, it, you know, it's not even a thought in her mind. For me, if I were sitting next to a friend who was sober and they didn't want to be around drinks, I would have to fight with every fiber of my being not to order a drink because I think about it. When I was not sober, I thought about it all the time. We'd be out to brunch and I was thinking about it. I'm like, can I get away with it? Can I get away with ordering a drink without people thinking I have a problem? 
I just see it that it doesn't even, it's not a thought that crosses her mind. And I would encourage anyone who's looking to get sober to find friends like that, even if it's hard because drinking is so, again, widespread and prevalent and sobriety is a bit of an anomaly, but there are friends like Donish out there and I'm just blessed. I think it's really divine actually that she's in my life. So having Donish has been huge. (laughs) You know, she's who I spend all my time with. So that has been very important for me. Like I said, I got sober in a household of people that were drinking daily. So I was immediately around it all the time. So really, I I can't take credit for that beginning period. I have to give all credit to the Lord because he, he was faithful to carry me through. And I was faithful to make a vow to say this is a lifetime of sobriety. And so to watch the faithfulness of God in that situation, I think, is where the, the credit is due. Because then I was carried back into California. And quarantine was a huge grace period for me. I know so much tragedy struck throughout this past year. But we would be remiss not to mention the victories. I'm on a sober app and I see how many people got sober because they had the, t- they had the space. I don't know how much longer I would have been drinking if I wasn't able to slow down and sit in it and realize how detached I felt from my own being. Finding people who raise you up. You know, I had friends even prior to being sober. One of my friends, my dear friends, walked me to an AA meeting months and months before I made the decision to get sober. But I just told him, I was like, dude, I'm not okay. And he's like, I understand and I'll walk with you. It's literally someone to walk with you. Those are the people to keep close. People that are going to support you and your decision and do research and just learn more about what is it like? What is it like? Maybe I don't understand what it's like to be an addict. What is it like? What is it like to struggle every day wanting to escape from your own mind? Yeah. Your own sober state. Uh, And that's essentially what it is. You talk about this sober app that you use. And obviously, because you made this decision when quarantine and the pandemic and everything was at its peak, there was no like AA meetings that you could like go walk into and like, you know, talk to a group of people about it. Have you ever thought about going to a meeting or is this this sober app that you have this form is has that been the best thing for you in terms of like connecting with other people that struggle have are struggling with what you struggle with? I, I went to that one AA meeting, like I said, I was, I had um, quite a bit of wine, actually, so I wasn't that sober, but that's common, you know, you go to your first AA meeting, there's a reason you're there, and you probably were very nervous, and you probably had some drinks, and I got a chip there, I remember, and I met, like, I was the only young person in the room, and I met all these, like, crazy middle-aged women, and they were <laughs> like, you can come over to my house, and like, you know, we'll take care of you, and, but I wasn't, and I wasn't ready, yeah. I wasn't ready for that community, and then when I got sober, I toyed with the idea of AA. Of course, I didn't really consider... I don't think at that point they had Zoom meetings because Zoom was still... It was still in the works, it felt like, to be widespread. I mean, of course, we were using it for school, but there wasn't... At least I didn't know about any immediate AA meetings on Zoom. For me, it was... My sober app was my resource. I actually went to an AA meeting, like, a couple months ago called the Bad Girls Club, and it was all, like, girls my age, and that was really cool. It was just cool how open and exposed and raw people are. Um, And I met girls that like seem so much like me. And I'm like, that's cool. 
but I have not worked the 12 steps. I have not been an active participant in the AA community and that's okay. That was my journey. I think it's a great tool resource community. It is, it's a community of people and I actually encourage it. That would be something I suggest, but it just wasn't something that was in my path at the time. You know, sometimes I still consider like, do I wanna work the 12 steps? Why not? So I might, I might end up doing it. It's never too late. I, I do notice a lot of parallels with like, I uh, believe in a higher power and I submit to a higher power and that's a big part of the AA journey. So I do see parallels. I believe in the journaling in the morning, you know, affirmations. And so yeah, who knows? Who knows what's in the future? I might uh, end up becoming a part of that community. So now we're almost a year in. What is it like being around it now? So as I mentioned earlier, there is this moment in time when I first come into a room and I can tell there's drinking going on or if we, you know, the handful of times we've gone out where I, it's like a two minute space where I am like, man, I really miss it. Ah, somebody just ordered an old fashioned. Ah, I would really love to just order a beer right now. And it really is only about two minutes that I have to endure that feels like grief in a way. I'm grieving the loss of a friend and then it goes away. And I'm so thankful that it goes away. You know, I went to a wedding in December. Uh, I was one of the only sober people that people there. It was an open bar and it was a great time and everyone was enjoying themselves. And I was so hydrated. <laughs> like, I, but I was, I, it made me remember that like, I am a sociable person. I love to be around people. And yes, of course, alcohol took the edge off for me to just totally like feel like I didn't have anxieties coming and creeping at me. But the more I've been sober, the more I've been able to deal with those anxieties and face them. It doesn't feel like something's breathing down my neck all the time because I'm dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm not collecting debt anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the most liberating moments in my sobriety journey so far was going to that wedding. And realizing like, I'm like, okay, I'm really okay. And I loved it. And I woke up perfectly fine, which was huge for me. I mean, that was always the thing, the shame of the next morning where all your serotonin is like MIA and you're just left with this headache and this regret and, you know, wondering, did I do something? Probably not. But I know I, that people definitely know I was not okay because I'm mm. sure I was slowing my words and None of that, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't, there's no room for it. How has your life changed positively and or negatively? Of course, there's a lot of positive changes, but of course it's not glamorous. Sobriety isn't glamorous. We were, I was drinking for a reason. I was looking to escape for a reason. Some of the negative components would be, again, dealing with whatever it was that I was trying so hard to just numb out because of, you know, a lot of that is anxiety. I have a, um, something called trichotillomania. So I pull my hair and it manifests mostly in my eyelashes. So for most majority of this year, I had bald patches in my eyelashes. Habits don't go away. They are replaced by other habits. And I think that was one that really just full force. It was like, I was just pulling on my eyelashes, pulling on my eyelashes. And right now I am pull free and have all my eyelashes and I'm so thankful for them. That was a really negative side effect where that, of course, that existed before, but not nearly as bad as the year this past year where I was just sober and coming face to face with like 
what do I do now? (laughs) You know, Um, the positive and negative meet in learning how to be present because it's a really painful process, but it is ultimately so much more rewarding than escaping. They they cohabitate positivity Mm -hmm. and negativity and I, I do think that it, the more you're diligent, the more that that positivity has the opportunity to win because you're not caving into the immediate satisfaction that you want in the moment. Someone wrote to you and said, thinking of quitting, but it just seems weird. Do you think there's a weird stigma around getting sober in sobriety? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think people, the minute you say you're sober or that you don't drink, people assume like what somebody said to me today. Right. You must have really had a problem. I think we just have to collectively decide that we stand together. Those of us that choose not to use substances, we stand together and our journeys may be entirely different, but I'm not going to sit here and shame the person who is a non-functioning alcoholic and act like I'm better than them Mm -hmm. because I was still able to be in school or like, I'm not like you though, because we are one. We all have a substance abuse problem. We are one and the same. I think bonding together helps us to alleviate that stigma. And we have to. I get angry at the stigma surrounding mental health and abuse, substance abuse. It's just disgusting and it feels really dated. It's like, what are, what do you, what time period do you live in? Like, this is real. It's right next to you all the time. And that's the other thing is like, with drugs, I get really sensitive. Of course, everybody has their own journey, but you never know when you're sitting in a room and you decide to do something in excess or like you're like, we're all going to do drugs. You never know who's going to get hooked. Yeah. You in in there. I don't know that this I don't think this is a st- statistic, but I think it's like for if you're sitting in a room with a bunch of people, there's probably one person in there that this is this is going to stick with them and it's going to be hard for them. And you may get out, you may have gone to college and had a wild phase, but there's someone that didn't and you know them and you may not know about it because they're ashamed and they shouldn't be. Just think about that when you're in a room and you're, and you're like about to do something that you know is problematic for people in the world, just consider that there's someone who might not escape. There's someone who just might have an entirely different makeup than you. So just consider it. What has been helpful for you? And then the flip side, what has been unhelpful in your sobriety journey? I I think what has been extremely helpful is people, uh, some people are really conscientious of my sobriety. And sometimes I laugh because I'm like, guys, I'm fine. (laughs) Like you can have a drink. But I, I reflect on that and I think, wow, I'm really grateful that they thought of me. And I'm really grateful that they considered me, even if, of course it's okay. But I don't, I, I'm blessed to think, well, but they considered me and they really want me to be, feel safe. I think what can be really unhelpful, especially in the time, in the period of time where somebody is considering stopping or considering living a sober life is to doubt them, is mm. to make them feel like, oh yeah, well, you said that before or any, any t- talk like that is just extremely regressive and just completely unhelpful. Or, um, you know, saying something like, you don't seem like you really have a problem. I mean, you can just like, why don't you just, you know, not, not drink as much or just practice moderation. That, those right. sorts of things when you have no idea. Like nobody knew how many wine bottles were piling up in my room because I kept that very secret. Yeah. And people may have seen patterns in me and the amount I was drinking in public, but they didn't know the ins and outs. They didn't know all the fine details. Don't doubt someone when they say, hey, I want to get sober. You have no idea. And it's not comforting to say, no, you're fine. 
even mm. though it seems like it would be. It's not because you don't know what's really going on. And if somebody says they want to get sober, your response should always be like, yes, I support you. How can I help you? Like, what do, what do we need to do? I think also how much courage that would take someone in your life to say that to, to you, making that decision and voicing it, and then to be met with doubt or like brushing away the problem, which we mm-hmm. talked about earlier, sweeping it under the rug. And just like you said, say, yes, how can I support you? How do I help you? Because you don't know what that person's journey has been like. You yeah. have no idea what goes on behind closed doors of any person's life. When that decision is made and then for someone to voice that and share that with you is huge and major and it should be welcomed and just support the people in your life. It's yeah. just like... Right. And trust them. Yeah. Trust them. They're not, why would anybody make that up? Right, make like, that yeah. hey, I have a substance abuse issue. What? Like, that's not funny and nobody would joke about that. It's not comical in any way. And yeah. so you should always take someone seriously. And I think also just people in your life that are dealing with addiction, just having grace for them because yeah. that is a everyday decision and mm-hmm. it's an everyday struggle. If you know anyone who's struggling with substance abuse or addiction, have grace for them and and just love on them. Because even if they have a bad day, don't shame them for it. You know what I mean? I think it's also like, what is it? The bandwagon? Falling off off the wagon? And instead of, you know, supporting someone and being like, it's okay. It doesn't, that that doesn't define you. And it's not like, you know, tomorrow it's, it's literally day by day. Yeah. Day by day. You have to take it day by, you have to take it moment by moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, you, that's why being present becomes so vital. And that's why I think like being sober and having to get sober can be kind of a superpower. You take all of that out of the equation and you're forced to essentially live in like a state of meditation if you want to live well. And I'm not saying I've done great with that. Like <laughs> I'm certainly still looking for distractions every chance I get. But to live fully and to live with peace is to strive every moment to be present because if you're not, you just have to be careful all the time. And there's great power in that. We've reached the end. This yeah. is the end of our little pod- podcast on Perry's journey, sobriety. Um, so to close it out, I want Perry to share a story. It's one that we can laugh about now, but yeah. when it happened, it was, it was not, not funny. Okay. It was not funny. Okay, so um, it was, you know, one night, I think we were having a party or a gathering. I don't know. It was just like people hanging out over here at Donish's apartment. We got cute. Like, there were all kinds of people. We went to the pumpkin patch, like, earlier oh. that day. Oh, did yeah. we? And we went to a... It was a party in the building I live in. See, the memories and, foggy. And we, looked, we looked cute. We were feeling ourselves. Right. We I had like, just gotten these new clogs, and I was like, yes, I got some new clogs. I have these plaid pants. I just love... I just remember feeling like, yeah, I look good. Anyways, you know, the night goes by. I get extremely drunk to the point where I, again... <laughs> because I'm an unemotional drunk. I got emotional and I wanted to go home because I had work in the morning. Very responsible, Perry. And I left to go call an Uber. I grab my duffel bag. I'm in this cute little outfit with my clogs and I go, I leave the gate. This is a gated apartment and I call an Uber. My phone dies. I didn't even, I think, get to like submit for the Uber and I couldn't get back in because it's gated and my phone was dead. So I sat there and I contemplated life and I was like, no one's going to come let me in. If I were sober, I might've thought like eventually a car will come and the gate will open. But no, I thought the best solution because I had to be up at 7 a.m. would be to walk the three and a half miles to my house in my clogs (laughs) at 
2 a.m., 3 a.m., I don't know what time it was. It was very, it was too late for me to be walking in an all-white outfit along the streets of Newhall in clogs with a duffel bag slung over my body. Like, but I did. I walked all the way home, three-something miles. I woke up the next morning hating myself, like a life crisis sort of moment where you're like, what is wrong with me? And I looked at my clogs and they were torn to freaking shreds. <laughs> oh, even to this day, I still have those clogs and I did get them resold, but I look at them and it's a reminder of that night. They're just tattered. Like they'll never look the same. And I had to go to work and I, oh, I was just, I can't believe, I mean, seriously, by the grace of God, I didn't get snatched up. Like what? Walking home in the dark? I can't believe that of all the stories Three miles. That I, yeah, of all the stories that I've heard you tell me that you have not been in a horrible situation at one point. Seriously. I'm a runner. Like she, she is a runner. She, she is a runner. And I remember when you you told me that the next day, I got so mad at her. Oh, I was yeah. like, "You idiot. Like what the hell were you thinking? Like da 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 da." da. And oh gosh, I, I don't I will never forget that yeah. moment. I'll never forget when you told me you're like, "Yeah, I walked home last night." And I was like, "What the what is wrong with you what is wrong with you yeah uh cringe cringe memory but you know we can tell it because there is that part of my life does not have dominion over me anymore i am a free woman it is day by day and i have such faith that this is a calling on my life to be sober and to talk about it because that's where peace comes that's where healing comes we need to talk about this so if you are somebody who wants to get sober, I am here for you. I'm I'm a phone call away. I'm a FaceTime away. We can talk about it. And I'm a place of encouragement. And we just, we grow stronger together. Thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate this. I am so happy to be celebrating a year sober. Um, I never would have thought, I remember the first few days in, I was like, ah, oh, this feels like it's taking so long to just, exist like this and then it gets so much easier it just does and so yeah i encourage all of you if you want to get sober to do it just do it like we can do this i love you guys thanks for listening thank thanks you for listening, guys yeah thank you donish for being here today <laughs> thank thank me for being here on your talk show right on my talk right. show yes i'm You're the welcome. next oprah that's it guys uh i guess we'll see you next time yeah we'll keep you posted uh on what kind of content we'll be putting out we <laughs> you got suggestions please give them yeah. to us we, what sort of genre are you guys interested in horror horror yeah. oh we do love we horror. love horror you um, know give us some give us some suggestions about what we should talk about next because yeah. i think our podcast is probably going to be a bunch of like what we dealt with today you know a what hodgepodge. i mean a hodgepodge yeah. of honestly everything all right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Do, do, do with DMP. We're doing a podcast. Yeah, with DMP. Yeah.